Hello everyone and welcome to a new episode of our podcast At War. Thank you to everyone who tuned in to the last one on nuclear strategy. Today we'll be talking about US foreign policy under the new Biden presidency in the context of South Asia. Our guest today is Ali Sultan. He is an international law expert and he served as the executive director of RSIL from 2012 to 2016. He currently teaches at the Lahore University of Management Sciences and he holds the JD from the University of Virginia Law School, where he also edited the Journal of Law and Politics. Thank Thank you so much for being here with us today. Great to be with you and many congratulations on this uh, excellent venture at war podcast. <laughs> Thank you. Um, so I wanted to start off and talk about the new Biden presidency in the context of it being perhaps a continuation of Obama's era. Um, so what implications will the new change in administration have um, from the Obama administration, where we saw a massive increase in drone strikes, the central allocation of blame for the Afghan war on the Pakistani state, as well as a really counterintuitive emphasis on Pakistani importance. Um, recently, we saw Biden's statement to Hamid Karzai, where he said that Pakistan was 50 times more important than Afghanistan to America's regional interests. So what, what implications do you think that that will have? Well, um, I think the first thing that we need to realize is that the world is fundamentally a very different place than it was when uh, during the Obama presidency. So the organizing um, principle of American policy at the time was counterterrorism and Pakistan itself was uh, at war with uh, insurgents and militants. Now, as you know, uh, we have turned the page, we have turned the corner, we have successfully uh, overcome militancy in our borders. Uh, and, of course, uh, the mistrust which bedeviled this relationship during the Obama years was a byproduct of uh, the war on terror, which was uh, being waged with full uh, urgency uh, and ferocity at the time. Now, today, that's really not the organizing principle of U.S. foreign policy. Uh, now it uh, that principle really has shifted to what you could call global, uh, you could you, what you could call great power competition or GPC, uh, which is that uh, how should we uh, deal with China going forward? So in a sense, um, the main issue from the world is no longer is no longer counterterrorism. It really is about uh, managing this bilateral relationship that the U.S. has with China, which is the most significant bilateral relationship in the world. Um, so that's the first thing uh, to keep in mind, the fact that the world today is, uh, is a completely different place than it was during the Obama presidency. Uh, and also the fact that Pakistan now, um, you know, we, have, we ourselves have set a new tone in terms of uh, our overall orientation towards uh, foreign relations. Um, our singular focus no longer is on military security, but what we are trying to do is that we are enhancing uh, the umbrella of national security to include also non-military uh, uh, security issues. Uh, which, of course, will be of immense interest to the Obama administration, issues such as uh, climate change, uh, pandemic control, um, you know, um, the overriding principle of our foreign policy going forward uh, is not just going to be, uh, as I said, uh, 
military security, but also economic security. So uh, the Foreign Office, uh, the National Security Advisor, the Prime Minister, uh, everybody these days uh, is, is emphasizing on the fact that Pakistan should be seen as a geo-economic state rather than a state which uh, is singularly seen through the prism of its geostrategic importance. Now that leads to the to your next question, um, you know, to the sub part of your question, which is Afghanistan. Now things in Afghanistan are very delicately poised right now. Uh, as you know, one of the things which the Biden administration has done is that it has ordered a review of this uh, agreement between the Trump administration uh, and, of course, the Taliban, which was concluded about a year ago, uh, 29th of February last year, whereby the U.S. troops were supposed to draw down uh, or withdraw, in fact, entirely from Afghanistan uh, by, uh, by May. Now, that is in a bit of a limbo right now. Mm. Uh, and we hope that uh, the U.S. will also realize that our leverage and our influence vis-a-vis certain actors in Afghanistan is limited. It's not unlimited. So, you know, we can always, as they say, we can always take the horse to the water, but we can't make the horse drink that water. So Pakistan has been playing a positive, facilitative role in the whole Afghan peace process in the last two or three years, definitely since uh, the Obama administration uh, left uh, about four, four and a half years ago. And that has been acknowledged by the U.S. Uh, so I don't think that um, if the Biden administration uh, is to respond to this on the basis of facts and truth, and that's also, I think, another thing that will change dramatically under the Biden administration. Uh, in the Trump administration, you saw a scattershot, uh, randomized foreign policy being conducted, whimsically being conducted by the U.S., uh, now you would definitely see a more structured approach towards foreign relations, uh, which, of course, uh, adds predictability uh, and subtlety as well to the entire uh, system, which is good uh, because, um, uh, because the system becomes more, um, you know, more, uh, it's easier to set one's priorities within such uh, a system. Right. Mm. Uh, and the other important thing that will happen is that the Biden administration is going to be more um, respectful of truth and facts. So if you go by truth and facts, uh, I don't think anybody can deny the positive role which Pakistan has been playing in the Afghan peace process. We want a prosperous, peaceful Afghanistan because, as I said, our entire focus is also going to be now geoeconomics. We would like, um, you know, uh, uh, we would like to trade with Afghanistan. We would like uh, better integration, better regional integration. And that's not possible unless there's peace in Afghanistan. But the world and the United States should also be mindful that uh, there are spoilers uh, to the Afghan peace process as well. Uh, you have um, ISIS, Khoristan, uh, which is <clears throat> which has been regrouping um, in Afghanistan of late. And then, of course, we have our eastern neighbor, which feels a little left out, which has been feeling a little left out from the whole uh, peace process. Mm. 
but ultimately uh, i think pakistan realizes this and i think the biden administration will also realize that the fate of afghanistan lies in the hands of the afghan people it's up to the afghan people to lead and negotiate the way forward which is peaceful uh, and that's you know that's uh, a positive and a fruitful outcome for everybody involved so those were you know those would be my preliminary points mm-hmm. uh, that i would like to make uh, and also uh, this fact that uh, truth subtlety um, no more in your face diplomacy uh, is not going to be uh, you know it's not going to be in your face as we as we saw during the trump administration it's it's going to be a lot subtle it's going to be fact based evidence based many administration officials uh, in the top positions they've got all the platinum credentials that you can think mm-hmm. about including secretary of state blinken uh the national security advisor jake sullivan he's a jd from yale law school um so it's, it's a bunch of intelligent uh, reasonable and rational minded individuals at the top which is um which is a positive break from what we saw during the trump administration yeah i think that's really interesting um given that we hear so much about us living in a post truth world mm-hmm. um that you're saying this about the Biden administration where so many people thought that Trump was really the true face of America the its truest face um and i think even president assad of syria said that about trump that he's the best one because he's the most uh, transparent but i i wanted to go back to your point about joe biden and the movement away from terrorism um because his foreign policy approach has really been um the ter- counterterrorism plus approach so um relying on like a small special force contingent and then um aggressive air power rather than like a large ground uh, troop deployment mm-hmm. um and we're seeing that in the afghan peace deal so he's saying that actually no i want to keep this special counterterrorism force behind and we don't know yet what the taliban will react to that how they they will respond to that so Also in terms of how Pakistan plays into this um when Biden as vice president um and the Abdullah raid happened he was the only high level US official who was against the idea saying that you know Pakistan status was a significant ally in the war next door. So having done that having emphasized Pakistan's role do you think that Biden will be relying on Pakistan more and more in the months to come especially given Pakistan's um significant role in the Afghan peace process? Yes, for sure. Uh, definitely when it comes to uh the security situation in Afghanistan, the US will uh certainly continue to rely on Pakistan as it has been in the last two uh, two years or so uh to essentially get this peace process over the line. But again, as I said, the US should realize that our bounties uh vis-a-vis the Taliban are limited and they're not unlimited so uh, i wouldn't like both the countries to get into a situation where there's again this creeping mistrust between the two sides which is what bedeviled this relationship mm-hmm. during the obama presidency uh, so i wouldn't like to see a repeat of that horror show this trust which has been uh, you know which has been built in the last two or three years should continue into the future Uh, but i do agree that biden administration will certainly continue to rely on pakistan to find a peaceful uh, and and enduring solution to the crisis you know as they call it the never ending war the forever mm. war in yeah. afghanistan yeah. 
but I would also like to emphasize that uh, right now, Pakistan would not want the Biden administration to just deal with Pakistan through the prism of Afghanistan. We want this, we would want, ideally, we would want this bilateral, bilateral relationship to be much more comprehensive in terms of its scope. So we would, of course, want to engage with the U.S. on trade and investment. Uh, we would like to engage with them uh, on climate change. We would like to engage with them on pandemic control, global health, uh, and also uh, regional security. If there is one uh, overriding concern which the U.S. has vis-a-vis -vis South Asia, it is to maintain regional stability. Right? Mm. And regional stability means maintaining peace between India and Pakistan. Um, you know, the LOC a few years ago was described as the world's most dangerous border um, or frontier. So uh, it is a nuclear flashpoint. And as you know, um, things in our eastern uh, neighborhood uh, in the last few years have upped the ante so much in the region in terms of uh, potential aggression and so on and so forth. So I think that's also something which uh, the Biden administration uh, should focus on, uh, maybe try to play a part in uh, resolving or trying to resolve the Kashmir dispute, uh, trying their best to tamp down tensions between India and Pakistan. Uh, to maintain that regional stability. So that's also something that uh, that we'd wish to see. Mm. And and moving to that, uh, to its involvement in the region, um, we've seen that the new administration has already reached out to Modi in furtherance of Obama-era policy of repivoting to Asia away from the Middle East. Um, as the Biden administration seeks to hem in China by relying on India and other regional bulwarks as like a stalwart, what can Pakistan do to like leverage itself in this new arrangement? Look, I think Pakistan has been very clear that it doesn't really want to come, uh, you know, in the crosshairs of this uh, great power competition. Hmm. Um, our foreign policy is just geared towards the uh, welfare of our own citizens, uh, the welfare and prosperity of our own citizens. So we want to stay clear of any, uh, you know, any great power competition. But it's correct that India and the US have been forging this strategic partnership in the last two decades or so. Uh, and the primary impetus behind that is to contain China. So mm. India, is a member of what's called the Quad, uh, which also includes South Korea, Japan, and Australia. Uh, the US would expect these countries to essentially provide a balancing coalition against China's rise. Uh, now, to what extent is India willing and able to do that is, uh, is an open-ended question, uh, because India traditionally has had this uh, doctrine of strategic autonomy um, running through their foreign policy. And that, of course, is going to be challenged. That is being challenged now uh, when India has to pick one side. As far as Pakistan is concerned, I don't think we're going to be picking any sides. There's no compulsion on us to pick any side. Um, and, and the structure of the international system is such now that we don't have a unipolar uh, world anymore, mm. but we've got 
two or three states uh, the us of course is the most still the most dominant power in the world but china is not too far behind now both militarily and economically uh, and russia also you could also include russia as a resurgent great power um, so there is multipolarity in the system um, and it's not uh, perhaps appropriate to um, you know to compare the present uh, multipolar uh, moment or the multipolar structure of the world with the cold war so it's not necessarily going to be a zero sum game moving forward countries can definitely uh, adopt hedging strategies uh, vis-a-vis us and china and i think that's what we will do um, you know that our bilateral relationship with china uh, is historically mm-hmm. uh, very deep uh, it runs extremely deep uh, and it's full of trust uh as far as both the sides are concerned there have never been really any trust issues and of course china has gone on in, and invested uh 60 billion dollars uh through cpec um, and that's something that our economy our country needs we have a young population 70% of our population is under the age of 30 so uh, you know it's necessary for us that um that such investments such economic initiatives are undertaken in pakistan so uh, what we would actually like is to is to invite america to co-invest in cpec projects or in other projects in pakistan one of the things that they can do is to get into economic partnerships with pakistani firms pakistani businesses and then produce and re-export products to china because if one of the things which this great power competition is going to do is that uh, the us is going to try to alienate china economically right so if us businesses want access to chinese market one of the best ways of doing that is through re-exporting products from pakistan and take advantage of the favorable trade agreement that pakistan and china has so there are all sorts of uh, creative and innovative things that that can be done as long as there is political will on both sides um moving forward hmm i wonder about that because the us has always been so opposed to china's belt and road initiative and cpec in that it's always seen it as like a predatory trap for developing countries whatever they get themselves involved in with china um and that is the reason for closer us um and indian ties and we've seen that recently they've had they've they've made all of these agreements with india on geospatial intelligence and logistics and stuff like that um and even apparently the americans were giving um india intel in in the conflict in ladakh against china so do you think that there is given Chinese threat as an economic power do you think that we will see any kind of that political will from the Biden administration we might uh, you know hope springs eternal mm-hmm. as they say but you also have to understand um, there are some us presidencies which are defined by foreign relations so you think of the lyndon johnson administration it was entirely consumed by vietnam war you look at the george w bush administration the, at least the second uh, second tenure was entirely consumed by the iraq war 
the Biden administration has so much on its plate when it comes to domestic issues. Uh, Trumpism uh, is very much alive. It's very much a very it's very much a potent political force in the U.S. The Democratic Party has a razor thin majority in uh, the Congress, mm. um, and given the U.S. system of checks and balances, the president's executive powers are severely checked uh, by the courts as well as uh, the legislature. So that's the nature of the U.S. system, right? Um, so that's why if I were to crystal ball, and maybe if we were having, if we were to have this conversation again after four years, mm-hmm. just to review the first Biden presidency, the first tenure of Biden presidency, and now it's another matter whether there will be a second Biden presidency or not, which, uh, given his age and so on and so yeah. forth, so that also throws a lot of uncertainty. You know, states right now are adrift, kind of adrift in terms of deciding definitively as to what to do because they've had this experience for the last four years where the U.S., uh, the credibility of the U.S. has suffered immensely. So one of the challenges which the Biden administration is facing is to restore this credibility of the U.S. Now, that's a massive challenge. Um, So even if there is political will, you have to understand that in terms of priorities, where would this priority lie for the Biden administration, just within the foreign policy domain, which, of course, itself is perhaps going to play a second fiddle to the domestic issues that confront uh, the Biden administration right now. Um, you know, a deeply polarized uh, society, um, yeah. as you mentioned as well. Um, there is uh, perhaps um, a reasonable basis for saying that uh, the U.S. is facing an existential uh, and identity uh, crisis, uh, certainly as far as um, cultural uh, and social aspects are concerned. So that's why uh, I think that uh, one can always hope, one can always try diplomatically, of course, uh, but maybe, um, you know, um, whether something concrete comes from it or not, we shall see. Yeah. Um, it, it's just made me think of something that I recently read about Biden, which is that septuagenarians are not known yes. for bringing about revolutions. Okay. All right. <laughs> yeah. So it's it, right. just all of this, you know, I mean, it, I, I want to be hopeful, but it, it does make you think about it in those terms. And I want to use that to talk then about his vice president now, mm-hmm. Kamala Harris. So the extent to which we'll see her factoring, considering she is a recipient of the highest campaign donations made by the Indian diaspora to any candidate. So and we know that the Indian diaspora is famously hawkish and they have supported India's illegal annexation of Jammu and Kashmir. So will there be a Kamala Harris factor? We recently saw that there was a tweet which was taken down, which referred to Jammu and Kashmir as India's. Um, and then it was posted again with a correction saying we, we meant that this is disputed territory. So will that be a factor? Okay, uh, look, uh, if, they, if there ever were to be a Kamala Harris factor uh, was essentially, I think, uh, eviscerated uh, in the aftermath of these tweets by her niece uh, on the mm. farmers' protest, Mina Harris. Um, yeah. And there were uh, posters of her which were being burnt on the streets in Delhi. And then she later on tweeted, feeling, you know, saying how spooky it feels 
that these strangers are just burning my mm-hmm. uh, my effigies, my, my yeah. effigies uh, and and posters so i think that's the defining image of india which the harris family now has mm. in their minds and also another thing you know kamala harris associates herself more with the black community of the us i mean she was given the ticket not because of her south asian ancestry but because of her uh, representation as a black woman as a woman of color um, and that's how she grew up as well uh, that's how her mother even raised her mm. so uh, you know that's why i don't think that she's going to you know she's going to be particularly influential and in any case you know the vice presidency uh, someone once famously one of the vice presidents i think it was johnson uh, or maybe spero agnew one of the two who famously called vice presidency as a picture of warm spit <laughs> so uh, i don't wow. know how much of an influence the vice mm. president plays to begin with and the other thing is there have been several members of pakistani diaspora in the united kingdom for example who have risen to even higher you know to to as high positions as kamala harris so you had uh, the right honorable sajid javed who was until recently the chancellor of the exchequer yeah. in the uk uh, we've had uh, the mayor of london yeah. who was so they they think like uk citizens and nationals kamala harris is a us citizen and national and to her it's american interests which matter because at the end of the day she's answerable to american voters so um you know as they say you know galib famously said dil ko khush rakhne ko ye khayal acha hai galib so in terms of feeling good about her ancestry i'm sure uh, some people might exult about that in india but the fact of the matter is that it was essentially evaporated the moment uh, meena harris was so uh, viscerally attacked by the hindu nationalists so you know uh, also some other officials in the now that we're talking about uh, modi and uh, and the forces of majoritarianism uh, and nationalism which he has unleashed some other officials in the biden administration have been extremely skeptical of uh, of modi they've written about it in fact the the new director of the cia uh, william burns when he was the president of carnegie uh, endowment for peace he wrote an article when modi was campaigning for trump in the howdy modi rally in texas mm. so at the time he wrote this article it's still available on the web uh, anybody can access it uh and it's highly critical of modi uh and his lurch towards authoritarianism uh, okay and majoritarianism uh so that's one anthony blinken also knows the region very well um as does jake sullivan um and these are not people uh, whom you can uh you know whom you can fool for too long so this image that perhaps india the soft image that india has tried uh you know has tried to project um, might have worked during the trump administration but it's going to come increasingly under um, you know under criticism under scrutiny now in the us as well as globally because again you have to link it with what i said earlier which is that 
generally speaking, truth now is going to be fashionable again, mm. uh, which was not the case. Uh, so a lot of this image building, which you know, which India has done, uh, hasn't really been based on on facts. Um, there's a lot of fantasy. There's a lot of make believe that goes on behind that. Whereas the reality is, you know, recently there was an article in Time magazine that said that how long can India go on pretending that it is a democracy? Mm. And, uh, you know, um, the first call which uh, Biden made to Modi, uh, well, first of all, the, the call to Prime Minister Modi was the 19th call that he made to any uh, head of government. So that means that he was 19th on the list. Um, the first foreign policy statement which uh, Joe Biden made as the president uh, with Anthony Blinken on his side uh, he mentioned almost all his allies, but he, there was no mention of India, right? The incoming uh, U.S. representative to the U- to the United Nations, when she was asked at her confirmation hearings uh, whether U.S. supports UN permanent UN Security Council permanent membership for India or not, she was non-committal about that, which is um, which is moving away from the U.S.'s earlier position. Right. Uh, so you have to look at all of these things uh, as a whole and not really, you know, not really focus on these ethnic issues. They mm. might, they might, you know, they might make us exult here in South Asia, but that's not how the U.S. works or how the U.S. political system works. Yeah, you've talked a lot about uh, Secretary of State. Anthony Blinken. Mm. Um, and we know that he's been a longtime Biden confidant and he's been accused by several policy analysts, analysts of being wrong about every foreign policy decision over the past two decades. So we're talking about Iraq, Syria and Libya. He's always been on the wrong side. Um, so will the return of this Biden Blinken nexus signal the return of America's long degraded neo-imperialist policy, as well as the deep state in general? Well, I hope not. Um, Blinken is, is, he's extremely suave, uh, you know, but there, but again, you have to understand that in the last four years, the State Department has been gutted so much by, by, uh, by Donald Trump, that uh, there are teething capacity issues at the State Department itself. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm not too sure whether the State Department will be playing as outsized role as it traditionally has in U.S. foreign policy uh, making as well as implementation. There are other actors as well. Um, Secretary of Defense, uh, you have the National Security Advisor, you have the National Security Council, uh, President Biden himself. Uh, And he may also seek advice from uh, some of his close confidants such as John Kerry, who he has appointed as the as the envoy to uh, on climate change. Um, so Blinken uh, is not going to be singularly responsible for foreign policy uh, decisions or choices. Uh, and I would hope that, uh, you know, maybe this time around, uh, now that he is the Secretary uh, of State, uh, very well educated, very suave, um, and I hope that, you know, uh, this time, maybe he makes the right calls. Mm. Because yeah. that's what, you know, that's what the world needs mm. at this point. Um, sure, it's fine uh, that the multipolar, the, the multipolar structure of the world demands 
some kind of competition. There's this argument called the Thucydides trap that's made by Graham Allison uh, about how, about the inevitability yeah. of great power competition. So we're in that moment. Mm. Uh, we're in that historical moment right now. But um, it doesn't mean that there has that it has to end in some kind of a catastrophe. So I would like to see uh, both China and the U.S. and Russia uh, and other uh, you know strong powers in the world playing a more responsible uh, role, more respectful of international law uh, than we saw in the last four years. Because again, one of the key Biden administration uh, officials, his national security advisor, Jake Sullivan, he wrote an article about a year back in the Foreign Affairs uh, magazine that uh, I think sums it up very nicely, which says that competition, like the title is, competition, not catastrophe. Hmm. So competition is, in, 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 is yeah. inevitable, but there are definitely areas of convergence as far as China and the US are concerned. And one of those areas of convergence is maintaining peace and strategic stability in South Asia. Mm. That is why I'd like to go back to my earlier point and stress that regional peace in South Asia, as well as resolution of the Jammu and Kashmir dispute, should be high on the agenda of the Biden administration. And this is, um, you know, and this is one of those convergences one of those uh, areas, global areas of concern, in addition to others also, for example, um, North Korea, uh, China and the US will have to collaborate on that. Hmm. Climate change, China and the US will have to collaborate on that. Um, Other areas as well, global pandemic. Uh, We saw that uh, the Trump administration had this unilateralist impulses uh, but one thing that we would see and Blinken believes in that heavily is multilateralism is this return to multilateralism mm. so we're already witnessing the US uh, re-engaging with multilateral institutions that's positive uh, for all uh, internationalists as well as those who believe in international law um, so I think that's really the defining that's really going to be the defining challenge global challenge in the next four years Mm. which is how is the china and the u.s relationship going to play itself out as i said i would hope and i would agree with his uh, with biden's national security advisor that sure there's going to be competition but competition should not mean catastrophe yeah in fact, there should be areas of convergence where, and collaboration moving forward as well. Mm. Um, and we did even discuss the the Thucydides trap with Ajaz Heather on the last podcast in the okay. context of the US and China viewing China as that and also uh, China viewing India as that as well. And I, I think it will be interesting going forward to see whether the US views um China as a competitor or an adversary. And maybe we'll see that playing out in the South China Sea or areas of contention between these two countries. Sure. I think the Indo-Pacific in general is a higher area of priority for the US than mm. South Asia. Yeah. Uh, if, if, if you were to prioritize. Even the, uh, you know, even the 
the partnership that they have with India, it's more Indo-Pacific mm. uh, centric or focused. Like Quad is Indo-Pacific uh, rather than uh, being focused on South Asia. So South mm. Asia has its own regional dynamics uh, where, of course, Afghanistan, uh, the issue, the, the Afghan issue um, is central. And of course, uh, the, the most important South Asian relationship happens to be India and Pakistan. And that's yeah. what I've been, uh, you know, that's what I've been repeatedly saying mm. uh, needs to be uh, addressed. Uh, and the U.S. Uh, should, uh, m- you know, perhaps more actively manage this, this brewing crisis uh, since uh, 5th August 2019. Mm. And since, you know, since we're talking about South Asia, we should also not forget uh, what's going on in Myanmar, right? Yeah. Uh, as you know, recently there was a coup and the Biden administration has been uh, very assertive in terms of demanding a return to uh, democracy, uh, which also fits in with the overall, um, you know, with the overall agenda which Biden has, which is to promote liberal democratic values yeah. as much as American pragmatism would allow Mm. Uh, so that's also important for us because again you know the whole relationship with India is based on this shared you know commitment to liberal values and those are the values which are being eroded in India so that's why I think that the Biden administration if not so overtly would definitely behind the scenes will apply pressure on India to uh, to put an end to some of the human rights violations that have been going on. And in that context, uh, I think it's also important to remember that uh, when Obama was the president and he visited India in 2015, he was the, you know, he was the guest of honor uh, at the Republic at the Republic Day celebrations. But just for three days, he just remained quiet on uh, on the worsening of, uh, of fundamental freedoms yeah. and civil liberties in India. But his parting shot, just before he left, uh, when he was addressing students, like young, a younger crowd, he was very clear that India's economic future uh, is dependent on its tolerance for religious freedom. Mm. And that is something we have seen, uh, you know, rapidly erode in India in the last yeah. uh, four years, uh, especially during the second term uh, of Modi. And there are many people in the uh, Biden administration, which were also part of uh, the Obama administration. That's why I think that um, you know, uh, the Biden administration will certainly bring up these issues uh, with India, uh, maybe not so overtly, but definitely behind closed doors. Mm. Right? Yeah. 
Yeah, I, I think that you're putting a lot of faith in these um, suave, well-educated professionals, but it just reminds me of something. We had a webinar where Dan Kavalik um, was discussing his book, and in his book, he was talking about the fact that Ivy Leaguers make the best war criminals because they're the ones who can defend their ideas um, incredibly articulately and eloquently. And he was talking in particular um, about uh, Samantha Power, who, I mean, he takes her down massively in his book. Right. Um, and well, I, Samantha, I kind of Samantha Power that. is now back as the head of the USAID. Yeah, okay? yeah. Uh, but look, um, there has been an argument going back since um, so you know, the times of Socrates that what is sophistry and what is mm. uh, true knowledge. So this is a never-ending debate. Uh, perhaps uh, you could say that uh, Ivy League and platinum education does make you silver-tongued. Mm. Uh, but, you know, um, I would still... I would still um, I would still trust them perhaps more than I would trust someone like, uh, you know, yeah. someone boorish as Donald Trump. Mm. Um, so, uh, but I can see your point. Mm -hmm. I mean, uh, the Germans were massively educated. Uh, it was known as the empire of the mind. Some mm. of the best philosophers have been Germans, and yet they ended up perpetrating the most, uh, you know, brutal uh, holocaust in history so yeah. uh, education does not necessarily uh, wipe out your impulses for power your impulses for um, you know for uh, for greed and so on and so forth uh, but I would like to see the cup you know half uh, half full mm. rather than half empty and remain hopeful on that yeah and yeah. in fact one of my heroes uh, was from my law school, uh, Robert Kennedy, uh, the great liberal icon, um, and Biden also looks up to him. So maybe that's why I'm I'm hopeful. Okay. And Biden is not Ivy League educated, by the way. Yeah, yeah, he's so, not. He's so not. maybe, so maybe, <laughs> so maybe he's suave enough, yeah. <laughs> minus the platinum credentials. Mm. So let's give him some. Uh, let's give him a pass on that. Okay. 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 Um, thank you so much for being here with us today. This is such great. an interesting discussion. Uh, and thank you everyone for tuning in at home. And we hope that you'll tune in for our future episodes. Goodbye. <laughs>